This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in Deuteronomy. Welcome Welcome to the club. Last episode was a full episode of a lot of good Bible benders for me, (laughs) and I know for you too, Susan. And a lot in Acts, which I just love the whole Stephen story. Yep. It's the continuation of, as Susan affectionately calls it, the just do it sermons from Moses. And he's not quite telling the Israelites what to do in the promised land, but he continues with a deeper dive into how to apply the Ten Commandments in their life. Moses covered expanding the concept of honoring the fifth commandment by giving instructions to respect those in authority, the judges, kings, priests, prophets. Moses ends with a promise that God would raise up the prophet like him. Okay. In the last episode, Moses provided for a new expanded civil order with judges and kings. We will learn in these next chapters that the consequences for many of the crimes in this civil order are serious, often involving capital punishment. It's important for us to remember that there are no prisons or police in this young nation. Additionally, their purpose is not to be a nation of law and order. Their purpose is to have a relationship with the holy God in a manner that is so unique that all the nations will hear about it and know that Israel's God is the one true God. And of course, that holy relationship will result in law and order because this is what God desires. Therefore, because they know God and have been given the laws and the promises, their obedience must be complete. They are his treasured possession, his chosen people. The blessing of the promised land and their favor with God depends on their obedience. We've talked about that a lot. The consequence of those for those who sin and break the commandments and pollute the land because it was defiling sin was, we talked about that in Leviticus, in many cases is death. So don't be shocked by it. This is the way it was back then. And there were a lot of reasons. Hopefully you've been with us through um, the whole entire Torah. And so you understand the whole purity and impurity thing. And we're going to talk about it a little today, but I'm not going to go into it. Just know you can go back to Leviticus and listen to that. The next concept that Moses is going to develop comes from the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. These are the rules for respecting life in the promised land, starting in chapter 19, with what to do when you accidentally kill someone and take their right to life. Chapter 19, when the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. Okay, here's our first rule. There are to be three cities of refuge in the promised land. Joshua is going to designate these as Kadesh in the north, Shechem for the central region, and Hebron in the south. Remember in chapter four that Moses had already designated three other cities in the Transjordan for the two and a half tribes that are going to settle on the east side of the Jordan River, not yet classified as the promised land. So in total, there are six cities of refuge. Verse four, this is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice aforethought 
For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of the cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. So that's the second rule. It is for unintentional murder or an accident. And I feel like we already did this the mm-hmm. first time Moses designated those, but he's just kind of repeating it now so he they don't is. forget. He's, he's actually kind of giving case law. He's giving these little examples. Examples of now what? Remember, when you get in the land, this is how this actually may go down. Because they've been living in this camp. It was all kind of different. And that's the whole point of him kind of expounding on these Ten Commandments and applying them to different things. It's not that these are part of the Ten Commandments now. He's just saying, hey, God has these Ten Commandments. Now, think about that. How can you apply that principle to something else. And he's giving examples because he's just worried about his babies that when they get to, you know, kindergarten, they're, they're not going to know what's going on. And that's what it's like. He's like sending his children into a new environment and he's thinking about all these things they need to know. Mm-hmm. Okay. This mention of the avenger of blood is a relative, like you said, we covered this, I think back in Leviticus, who under Mosaic law can kill or avenge the murder if it was intentional. And that was the law back then. If one of your relatives was killed, it was your job to enforce the law, to, to, to you know, get- Avenge. Avenge. Yeah. The blood avenger, it's called. Avenger of blood. So um, that's why they had the cities of refuge, because if it was an accident, then of course you'd want- You'd want to take it before a judge. Verse 8, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your ancestors and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. This just makes sense. If the territory gets too big, they can designate more cities of refuge so people can get to them easily. The cities create time for the murder to be investigated so that the avenger doesn't spill more innocent blood because then more people would have to avenge it and it just becomes a family feud. Verse 11, but if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor and then flees to one of these cities, the killers shall be sent for by town elders, be brought back from the city and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. If a person's murdered intentionally, he's sent back to his town and killed. For more on the nuances of of these murders, see uh, Numbers 35, Season 2, Episode 18. Verse 14, do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This one seems out of place, but let me explain. When you consider the importance of the land, you can see why Moses tagged it on here. The current generation of Israelites has been living as nomads for their whole life. Prior to that, their parents lived as slaves, and we can assume never owned land. So the promise of their own plot of land is a really big deal. God specifies that the land he's giving is also their inheritance from him, and it will be allocated by tribe, by clan, and then by family. 
as an inheritance, it is that family's land forever. It is also their primary means to economic security. Hence, it is a threat to their quality of life. And this whole section is about, you know, um, murder, but also protecting life. To move a boundary stone was stealing the land. Land that as a family inheritance affected the lives of generations to come. Moving a stone could become a family feud between families that potentially ended in generational murder. And for those reasons, I think he's stuck it in here. All right. Rules for witnesses to crime. Verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do for the other party, you must purge evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. If there's only one witness, usually a malicious one, meaning assumed to be a liar, the trial goes to the priests and judges at the sanctuary. There the accused and the witness will stand before God. After an investigation, if the witness lied, then he shall receive the justice he was falsely seeking against the other person. This type of justice, an eye for an eye, is referred to as lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. And it first appeared in the Bible in Exodus 21. We talked about it there. It also appeared in the old Babylonian code of Hammurabi. Jesus addresses the law of retaliation again in Matthew 5. While speaking to Jews who may have been tempted to invoke Italian law out of vengeance, he ties together two verses. One verse about an eye for an eye from this chapter in Deuteronomy. And the other is about loving your neighbor from Leviticus. Verse 38 in Matthew 5. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus did not criticize the principle of lex talionis for legal settings. Rather, he made it clear that it was never intended to be a guide for offenses in personal relationships. Jesus corrects the misapplication of retaliation by teaching that it is not the law of equal justice that applies in relationships, but the law of love and forgiveness. This often misunderstood principle does not legitimize vengeance as so many would like to believe. 
All right. In chapter 20, we have rules for war and the right to enjoy life. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. First, have no fear. You are going to win because I am with you, is what God tells them. Verse 5, the officers shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begin to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officers shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. I think this is super cool. I think, you know, Moses and God laid this out, this respect for life, this valuing of life in this section, you shall not commit murder. They're, They're talking about how precious life is. So he says here, you don't have to fight if you have a new house, a new vineyard, or a new wife. And these three underscore the beauty of God's promise for land as a provision of peace and prosperity to be enjoyed. The reason he's saying this here is because he wants them to be able to enjoy having this wife, but also the the opportunity to create the next generation. If you've just gotten married, you haven't had the chance to procreate, have children to leave your land too. And so he's giving them that opportunity to stay back from, um, from fighting and do this. Or they can just stay home because they're afraid because that affects the other soldiers. And then there's panic spreading throughout the entire camp. The third principle applied applies to the cities that are not inhabited by Canaanites. So these rules are for cities that aren't Canaanite cities. Verse 10, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. The terms of this peace offering are for forced labor, not equality. In other words, we are taking you over. You don't have a choice. Um, If they do not agree to the terms, it's war and all the men are to be killed. The Israelites can keep the women, children, and livestock. The fourth principle applies to war with the Canaanites. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. 
When you lay siege to the city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees. Use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. The Canaanites are a different situation altogether. We know that the reason for their total annihilation is a spiritual one. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, and then again, he spoke it in Deuteronomy 9, that it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord will drive them out. And because they and their worship of other gods was so vile, it included child sacrifice and prostitution, that they would be a temptation to Israel and therefore they should be eliminated. Chapter 21 first speaks about the atonement for an unsolved murder. If someone is found slain, lying in a field, in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who the killer was, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. When the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead it down to the valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley, they are to break the heifer's neck. The Levitical priest shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done, except this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent person. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for, and you will have purged from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We have talked about atonement a lot in our journey through the Torah. Atonement means to make amends for a wrong, to turn away God's wrath, and to restore the relationship with him. So when we sin, especially the Israelites, we have Jesus, totally different story. But back then, when they sinned, it it created wrath in God. He could not look upon sin, and they had to atone for it. And they did that by sacrificing in the tabernacle. In this case, they're spread out. They're now, Moses is like saying, you're going to be spread out, and um, you're not going to be near the tabernacle. But in the case of they come upon someone who's been murdered, okay, well, they can't kill his murderer because they don't know who it is. And so they have to atone for it in a different way. And um, atonement was God's separation solution for the Israelites. The solution that provided a way for God to dwell among them. Something that since the fall had been impossible. In this case, the only way to do it was kind of like a blanket. Okay, the whole community is going to step forward and do it with this heifer because they don't know how, how else to atone. They can't catch the killer. Now, in the show notes, I will put the printable that explains the separation solution of atonement so you can understand what happened at the fall and it kind of boils it down. But I really recommend you listen to Leviticus, which goes into it in detail. In this case, a slain or murdered body had been found. There must be atonement for the murder and the land itself had become defiled. And we talk about that in Leviticus that the camp comes defiled, but now it's the whole entire land. To atone and purify the nearest town must take responsibility for the ritual. The priests are present, but it's actually the elders of the town who break the neck of the heifer and wash their hands 
of the blood guilt of murder, which is very different than Leviticus. Okay, that was just an interesting one. Four laws are next relating to life rather than death, but they are affected by death. The first is the rights of a captive woman being considered for marriage. So it's a captive woman who probably has experienced death, the death of family or husband, we don't know. Um, and she's being considered for marriage, which it affects her life. So a little nuance there in that thou shalt not murder. Verse 10, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. When war happened, women and widows were left behind. Now, this scenario would have applied to non-Canaanite female captives only because remember, they're not allowed to marry Canaanite women. And Canaanite, if they had war with Canaanite town, Everybody would be killed. Right. So Um, they wouldn't lead them astray. No. These women did not have great life options, but Israel was a kind nation um, and they had laws to make sure that women were not abused. So these women could be forced into hard labor or they could be elevated to the position of a wife and grafted into Israel. To be a wife, there were rules. First, she must make a clean break from her old life by purifying herself, cutting her hair, her nails, and putting on new clothes. Then she is given the dignity of mourning that life that she left behind and her family for an entire month. This does not mean that her family was necessarily killed, only that she probably is not going to see them because she's kind of being grafted into the community. During that month, the Israelite could who, who took her in could reconsider his decision to marry her. So he's not sleeping with her or anything at this point. She's just living in his home and he's getting to maybe get over his infatuation with her looks and see her as a real person. We don't know. But it did say if he's attracted to her. Yeah. If she was so this next part is the hard part for me. After he has taken her to be his wife, if he is not pleased with her, he can let her go. But he cannot sell her or treat her as a slave because he dishonored her by taking her in the first place. But doesn't that mean then that nobody else can marry her? It doesn't talk about this. Again, these are not great options, but this is a captive from war. So while she's somewhat protected, and it does say that she can go live wherever she wants. So she is, again, not a slave. She can... Um, continue to live in the camp, maybe return if her family, maybe maybe her father was killed, but her mother's in the camp somewhere, or maybe they moved on to another city. I don't know. Um, but she's not to be um, treated as a slave or sold into a lower position. Okay. Second, we have the right of the firstborn son, which again affects the quality of his future life. Verse 15. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to the actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. 
he must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Yeah, this is kind of interesting because this happened to Jacob. You know, he loved Rachel, but um, but it was uh, Leah. Leah who kept having all the children and he honored that. The loss of men through battle often resulted in polygamy. The point Moses is making is that a husband's attitude toward his wife was not to influence God's plan for the land and the division of land. Now about polygamy, the practice of polygamy was tolerated during the Old Testament. Of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only Isaac was monogamous. Remember, he loved Rebecca. That was a sweet story. Polygamy, while tolerated, was a violation of God's order that was given in Genesis 2. All right, third, a rebellious son will lose his life. Verse 18, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You must purge evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Well, I would imagine they would. Well, and <laughs> if you y- would just sell your own son into the I, elders' hands. I cannot imagine this happening. I really can't. <laughs> But breaking the commandment to honor your mother and father was equated to breaking the covenant in Israel. So they were kind of tough with their kids. It also had a promise slash threat in it. Honor your parents so that you may live long in the land, implying that if you didn't honor your parents, you wouldn't live long. You would either die of natural consequences for disobeying or you would die because of your rebellion at the hands of your very own community. And every time I read that, I took it to mean the natural consequences. Right. But it really, in <laughs> context, know. means they literally would take them and have this them This is stone. a Bible bender for me. I did, not, I did not know this. Rebellion against parents was considered rebellion against God. It certainly would have been a powerful message to the children. Can you hear parents intense all over Israel's camp threatening their kids with, if you do that one? One more time, I'm going to have you stoned. Or how about, you're asking for a stoning. Or how about, do you want to get stoned? <laughs> that just seems really it seems mean. Awful. I know. <laughs> Lucky for I know. my son, we don't practice exactly. this thing today. I, can't, I mean, they probably didn't say that because it was so serious. <laughs> it's but still, terrible. It would be like, you know, wait, wait till your father comes home. Wait till I take you to the elders and you're going to get stoned. I mean, when my son was very young, I definitely used to threaten to like find a police officer on the side of the road and <laughs> oh my God. show him to them. But I don't I know if I would you, bring him yeah, to the elders. No, it would be really, really bad. I can't can't imagine anyone did it, but I'm sure somebody did. Okay, we have some rules next for dead bodies. Verse 22. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. When a convicted criminal was stoned, his body was then hung on a pole or a tree, they call it, signifying that the person was in an accursed state. They were accursed by God. In Galatians 3, Paul explains Jesus's crucifixion like this because that is why he was hung on a tree or across a pole. Galatians 3, verse 13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So this was another fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus became a curse for us when he hung like the accursed on a tree, thereby redeeming us, those who are cursed by the law. Chapter 22, protecting life from death. If you see your fellow Israelites ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you, or if you do not know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same. If you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they have lost, do not ignore it. If you see your fellow Israelites donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. It sounds as if the, the inclination to, you know, just mind your own business and go your own way that is prevalent today was also prevalent in Israel's day. And Moses makes it clear. If you see something amiss, a stray animal, a neighbor who's struggling, you are to make it your business to help. Love your neighbor and care for God's creation. Even the animals that your neighbors possess, you're to help out. Verse five, a woman must not wear man's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. This is an interesting one. In the beginning, when God created man and woman, he intended for there to be a distinction between the sexes. This is a kind of biblical principle that's kind of woven throughout. And anything that blurs or obliterates the distinction could lead to temptation and sin that was detestable to God. So was Moses referring to transvestitism? Most commentaries say yes. There are known examples of transvestite practices in both Canaanite and Mesopotamian worship that could have prompted Moses to warn about it. Verse six, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. When you build a new house, make a paraffin around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. The preservation of life is the focus for both of these cases. Long life for the mother bird and for anyone up on your roof is the goal. Moses's exposition of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is long than any of the others and highlights how important the issue of life and death would be in the promised land. Because in God's eyes, life is precious. In Genesis, he created us in his own image. In Psalms, he knit us together so that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In John, he so loved us that he gave us his only son so that we may have eternal life with him. Therefore, committing murder was taking away that right to life. It was taking away something that belonged to God because he created that life. And I think the irony in all of it is that Moses actually had committed murder at one point. Oh, exactly. He was one of those people who would have been stoned. He understood this. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday. And get all episodes now on Amazon Music. 
as always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.